When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you uh, two spoken, Aaron and Moko? Uh, oh, hey, no. man. How's it going? How are you? Doing well. Yourself? I'm good. Uh, no, Aaron and I are internet familiar. We travel in the same circles, so we know a lot of the same people. Yeah. We have a similar following base, I guess you might say. Well, we've never chatted face to face. We might have interacted on, on Twitter at, at some point, but nothing Yeah, I'm not even sure. Yeah, if that's the case, yeah. And also... I'm appreciating Oren's uh, 80s art in the background there. Oh, yes. Thank you. No, I, do, I do my best to keep it, you know, exciting. Well, I put the striper front and center, hoping that, you know, somebody would. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. No, no. The, 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 the 80s Christian metal kid in me is like, uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. What, Petra? <laughs> oh, I've seen Petra oh. live a number of times. So as, as yes. have I. Yes, I, and I've seen Striper Live, so yeah. This means war. Mm-hmm. We got to take this message back to the street. <laughs> yeah, beat the system, baby. Let's do this. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, man. John Schlipp. My dad was a fan, fan of John Schlipp back when he was in Head East still. And and so that's kind of where we kind of went back in the 70s. My dad told me that when John Schlipp decided he was going to be a Christian, that that was a very big deal. Do you remember uh, Phil Keggy? Do you, do you know Phil Keggy? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yahweh is one of my favorite songs. That was a fantastic piece. Yeah, I saw him live uh, with him, and he was like playing the acoustic upside, with, upside down with his teeth. It was great. Yeah, he was yeah. nuts. And as I recall, he was missing part of a digit on one hand, which makes it all the more amazing. Yeah, I know. He's one of, the, strumming yeah. Hand. Yeah, one of the one of the best uh, acoustic guitar players of all time. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Whatever happened to Christian music? It's still out there somewhere. It's just, you know. <laughs> Doing dubstep? Um, maybe. maybe. <laughs> this is like a bugaboo of mine that Christian artists aren't as good or as talented as their secular counterparts. Um, that's not always true, but increasingly the, the, the quality and the level of music which is written explicitly by Christians with a Christian mes- message that's outside of gospel is increasingly less and less, I would say. So where should we begin or where should we head? <laughs> I mean, the, you know, uh, Christian music is, uh, seems like fertile yeah. ground. No. <laughs> no, well, no, I think, I think it's actually relevant because insofar as um, all three of us are forms of dissident to the popular egregore culture, we need to support or find others forms of culture um and with yeah. the woke um whatever the woke is dominating all the major yeah. media um christian music seems to be um a metaphor for other forms of culture and where they are where they're stalling out perhaps. yeah i mean it was it was andrew, i think it was andrew fletcher who said give me the songs of the nation i care not who writes the laws he was a scottish political philosopher and and his point was and I, I actually think that he's right about this, is that uh, you can't design a system that will be 
um, what would you say, immune to failure. That just doesn't exist. And so um, it's, it's the culture, which is at the end of the day is going to ensure that the system, whatever system you have, has a certain amount. Arne, do you think Patriot Front is a front for the feds? Or is it a sincere movement? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. I get a lot of guff on this one. I mean, so a lot of this is, I'm sure some people who are sincere, you know, I'm sure that there are people who are trying, a lot of people buy into this myth that like, if you get enough people out and you like make enough of a show that things change in this way. And so I'm sure there are a lot of people who just want to do something and, and are sincere about that. I think it's very easy for uh, bad actors to infiltrate these groups and to push them uh, to do things that are really bad optically um, to, you know, for obvious reasons. And, uh, you know, the, these people need enemies. They need enemies of a certain type. They want them to have a particular aesthetic and they want to make certain, make certain actions. And I think it's much easier to pick up something that's half forged and move in the direction that you want it to rather than you know so do i think everyone in there is like you know an fbi agent no but like i'm sure there are people who are like you know sincere in that but i think um it's a group that lends itself to be obviously very used by people who want them to be used that way i just i don't understand why people fall for the threat it just seems like it it, people like to share and bitch about it or or scream about the sky falling into christian white nationalism when it's Mm. just such a pathetic even if it is real it's really pathetic and so small that it's not really really real it just they need it they need it to be real it has to be real like if it's not real then you have to start looking at actual problems like you have to start looking at you know, why, why can't I afford a house? Why can't I afford food? Why can't I, you know, drive, you know, why can't we go on vacation? Why can't, you know, like you, so it's really important that there's something much more dire that they have to keep their base whipped up about. So even it's ridiculous to look at the institutional control that the left has and then pretend for even a moment that there's some, this rise of, you know, whatever, like it's, it's insane to anyone who is any way grounded in reality, but the good news is the people who pipe reality into most people are the ones who get to, you know, set the tone. And so the, you know, the media and, and, you know, all these people, they get in, you know, the government, they get to deliver this story to people, even though it's absolutely ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the, of the, if, do you guys see the uh, arrests in Idaho? You guys saw that 31, 31 Patriot Front members arrested in Idaho? Like last how many of the, a couple of days ago? Yeah. 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 Remember, do you know how many of those people were actually from Idaho? I do not. Two. Yeah. yeah. The rest are bust in from otherwhere. They had a meeting. They had to bust people in from out of state. And the most they managed to get was 31 of them. These are not large groups. Right-wing militias are small. They tend not to be organized. They tend to have no clue what they're doing. Um, right-wing dissident militia organizations tend to be very, very, very badly organized. They tend to be utterly, utterly, utterly incompetent. Um, 
they don't have any significant infrastructure. They don't control any significant amounts of information. They can't hide their groups. They're infiltrated by Antifa all the time, very easily. They have no vetting capability. These are not competent groups. These are incompetent and stupid people who join these groups. I'll just say that. And people are going to be, I don't care if anyone's mad at me because I stand by that. Those people are dumb. Patriot Front is not smart people. These are dumb people who are very, very small. They're just loud and happen to kind of look a little bit scary because they'll get a gun or have a face covering or whatever it is. And they look a little scary. And then someone points up the image and says, oh, no, it's the face of evil in the world. And there's like 30 incompetent guys who get arrested because the FBI was waiting for them when they showed up with a dozen charges for bringing weapons across state lines or whatever it is. So these groups are not well-organized. They're not smart. They don't have any real power. None of them are really connected. I mean, the most power that any one of those guys is going to have is like one of their buddies used to be a bureaucrat under Ronald Reagan 20 years or like 30 years ago. Like some, there might be that kind of a connection, but none of these people have any significant influence of any kind. And when they say connected to Patriot Front, usually that means like, somebody liked a tweet like they're not this is not a robust strong group but could it be even somewhat true that there is a threat of white nationalism on the rise christian white nationalism on the rise that or is that just a power play um to shore up the base by blending when they, when they say when they say Christian nationalism and and you go through the academic literature and like check off like Christian nationalism, it fits very closely with black churches and what black churches like conservative black churches. So these people who are saying white Christian nationalism, I mean, there's far more left leaning liberal affirming universalist churches in white circles than there are in either Hispanic, black, or Asian circles. That's just a fact. So I, I think that this is. It's an absurdist. It is the attempt to create a boogeyman for people to be afraid of in order to justify um, the hysteria and the shrieking and to justify the use of various forms of, uh, of both government and social power. That's what that's about. I mean, Antifa can lay siege to state capitals for months that's at a right. time. And then no one cares. Like no one pretends that's a threat to the Republic. No one pretends that these violent extremists who regularly, uh, you know, take themselves to the street and injure people and, 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 you know, make threats against, uh, you know, government uh, agents. And then those kind of things, no one treats them seriously as a serious threat, but then we get these, you know, pearl clutching arguments about the rise of whatever, like, again, no one takes this seriously who isn't a hundred percent bought into this narrative Unfortunately, again, the people who manufacture it are also the people who are in control of law enforcement agencies and the media. And so they get to manufacture the story and force feed it to people. And no matter how insanely out of proportion these numbers are, it just doesn't matter because they're the ones who can you know, force feed this to the people who need to care about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it is a certain type. And I agree with that. It's completely a certain type of, of narrative warfare. But there's another thing here. Which, which is a, another absurdity kind of bursts through. Do you guys remember the Wisconsin Capitol protests in 2011? Uh, a bunch of people showed up with arms. So in, in 2011, for six weeks, I believe it was, uh, in Wisconsin, after Scott Walker passed some uh, legislation, there was a siege at the Capitol. It lasted six weeks, and they took it over. They completely took over the Capitol and stopped legislation from passing. Okay. 
There was several million dollars of damage done. There were bullets that were found at the scene after it was over. And they, the protesters took the rotunda over and said, this is what democracy looks like. They chased a Republican senator and almost got him until a Democrat senator who happened to be there jumped in their way. Okay. So they this had came from doctors. the left then. Yes, this was from the left, and this was in Wisconsin. They were protesting against Scott Walker. Now, there's two things I want to tie together here. The first is what happened, because uh, it was a lot of teachers and union members. And teachers didn't want to miss work to attend a protest because they wouldn't get paid, so they had to get a doctor's note. So there were doctors who were lined up at this protest to tell teachers that they could have the day off of work. And there's videos of doctors having appointments out in the street. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to tie two things together. The first is the use of the medical establishment in order to empower leftists to engage in their shenanigans. And the second is the fact that when they took over a Capitol building and stopped the the movement of legislation, this was cheered as this is what democracy looks like on Rachel Maddow's show, um, on Keith Olbermann's show. This was lauded. This was seen as a good thing. And so what you're really seeing then is is a sort of the infantile form of what you're seeing now on a much larger scale, right? The the use of the medical establishment, the the abuse of the credibility of various experts in order to launder through particular political narratives. You are seeing the um, the willingness to allow political leftists to engage in in physically stopping the passage of legislation. Remember. And as bad as the Capitol riot was, and I was the one who on the day of the Capitol riot said, retweeted a piece by Tom Cotton that said, send in the army, because I was having absolutely none of this garbage. Um, keep in mind that, that the election certification happened that day. Nothing was delayed or stopped for maybe more than a few hours. The Wisconsin Capitol protest lasted six weeks and stopped and held up the ability to pass legislation. And yet what happened? Which of those things was seen as a, as a bigger problem? Now, you could try and argue with me. You could try and nitpick and say, well, one's a state capital, one's uh, uh, the national capital. Oh, okay. But you didn't say it was bad that this is happening in the state capital. It was, the answer was, this is what democracy looks like. Yeah. Democracy looks like thwarting the will of the voters. And so what you're Where seeing here is, that's right. You're seeing here this, this, this stark hypocrisy and the memory holding of what happened in Wisconsin and the refusal to engage in showing how these two things are are connected is, I think, a very, very serious problem. And it's one of the things that the average person doesn't see because there's not going to be with the possible, and I do say possible exception of somebody like Tucker Carlson, nobody's actually going to bring that narrative up and bring that narrative out. We're not going to be able to have a chance to look at it, Right. Six congressmen almost were killed on a baseball field. When was no this? one remembers. Was this the was, one that, with the Bernie? Steve that was, Scalise? Yeah, that's right. Bernie Sanders voter. Yeah, game. I mean, like they say, well, we haven't killed anyone, not for lack of trying. You don't get to launder your bad aim as though you had good intentions. Yeah. Right. The difference well, is not that you were good. The difference is that you missed. Well, I, I think all three of ours audience are aware of this. This is kind of a starting position of everybody um, that watches us. The question that I have, or what I want to explore is what is the field of pushing against this like, and where are the fault lines between our different 
ideologies in the center and the liberal, uh, the center left, center right, and far right and deep middle. Okay. I, I would like to ask Oren, is that how you pronounce it, Oren? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oren? Yeah. Um, would you locate yourself in, so there are basically, I, I would say like four or five camps on the right. You have uh, your old school geo peers. So that would be people who believe probably like Dave French and Mitt Romney. You've got your libertarians who want to burn everything all down and just come utterly decentralized. That would be your like reason crew or like the libertarian party. You would have your social conservatives. So that would be like your Vic Santorums. Uh, then you kind of have like your, your dissident right wingers who pull from all of these at various points. And so I would put myself in that category. And then you have your kind of dark enlightenment NRX types. So if you had to place yourself would you pick one of those, all of them, or just place yourself? Like, how would you describe yourself if you had to, if you could? And if you choose uh, NRX, we should probably define that. Sure. Crowd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I certainly draw heavily from a lot of near reactionary thinkers. I use a lot of, uh, you know, Curtis Yarvin, Nick Land. They were kind of my first contact with a lot of this um anti-enlightenment type, you know, uh, stuff. And so, because I reference that a lot, a lot of people would put me kind of in that camp and that's fine. Like I don't, the reason I don't completely embrace that is that I don't agree with some of the conclusions, uh, that, a, you know, a, like a Curtis Yarvin comes to from kind of, uh, from some of that, but, uh, that that's fine. If that's where, you know, people want to at least understand the it's, it's really elite theory is where is a lot of what uh, Curtis Yarvin is is known for uh, popularizing through James Burnham as well. And so really what neo-reactionary thinking is, is actually updated Italian elite theory, um, Machiavellian political analysis. Uh, so so that, that I borrow heavily from that school. Yeah. Nick Land is kind of, uh, I don't, I haven't been able to d- dive too deep into him, but he's kind of like a techno kind of elite he, he brings in like a techno kind of land is very interesting because land was a hardcore marxist um and so he was uh very very enamored with that and its critique of capitalism and and and, and kind of delusing guitar and then when he kind of made contact with near reaction he did a little bit of fusion there and so land um takes on a lot of the kind of paleo libertarian um analysis of power and Machiavellian analysis of power from, from NRX and kind of grafts it into his own understanding of we're going to get deep in the water here, like uh, uh, deterritorialization, reterritorialization, accelerationism. And so, uh, so land is uh, complicated, uh, often impenetrable, um, uh, but uh, has some really important things to say about uh, kind of where our systems are going and why, uh, which makes him invaluable, even if sometimes very, uh, very difficult to to reach in certain areas. Also, so there's a connection here. Do you guys know who Mark Fisher is? Yeah. Mark Fisher wrote about capitalist realism. Mm-hmm. Mark Fisher is a very important figure on the left, particularly the neo-theory left. So um, the neo-theory left, which is kind of like the, the people who would comfortably be reading Zizek, Butler, Heidegger, 
Lacan, even some of them would get into Freud. That kind of school <coughs> um, I don't know if they've embraced, but he, Mark Fisher made a big splash there. And what he talked about was capitalist realism. What he said is that it's uh, the utter and complete inability to imagine anything outside of capitalism. And then capitalism that pushes through all the way through to absurdity, where you have utterly capitalist opposition to capitalism. So an example of capitalist realism would be like AOC wearing an uh, her eat the rich dress, like a $10,000 eat the rich dress to the mess gala. It's like, or more recently going to a nail salon as a sign of resistance. Yes. Yes. This is, this is capitalist realism, or this has elements of that from Mark Fisher and Mark Fisher was taught by Nick Land. Yeah. Fisher actually uh, borrowed a lot of accelerationism from Nick Land. So Nick Land's, idea is basically the the best thing to end capitalism is more capitalism because the, the only the, it can't you can't do anything that's going to destroy the capitalist process faster than doing more capitalism so there's really yeah. no escape from the the critique of capitalism is to do more capitalism is kind of a famous yeah. quote from from land and so fisher yeah. and land uh, intersect there quite a bit accelerationism and i need to learn more about it but it sounds a lot like what happens in postmodern thinking where deconstruction just happens for the sake of deconstruction in a way it's just this out of control process is it good is it bad it sounds pretty bad for land the pro yeah for for land the process simply is uh there, there's okay. not a lot of escaping it and that's kind of kind of why land is kind of seen as this doomer you know techno dystopia guy because he kind of says there's no escaping the cycle of the of the kind of the self-exciting feedback loop of uh, of capital and innovation uh and techno capital and so he doesn't um like i said he do doesn't really see a way to kind of break out of that cycle and and it's a it kind of imminent uh destruction and so uh yes bad but also for land kind of inescapable up part where I might differ with land, but a good insight to have. Yeah. 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 I, I would, I would, agree. I would say that the difference is that uh, in Landian Excel deconstruction is occurs through deconstructive readings, which are done by people. Deconstruction isn't something that happens to the text. There's deconstructive reading. So it's kind of passive. So I guess I get how those things are kind of seen, but what, but what Oren says about land is exactly right. Nick land thinks that, Acceleration, accelerationism just is the case. No one needs to do deconstruction. No one needs to do deconstructive readings. No one needs to do capitalist accelerationism. It just occurs. We could either embrace it or not. We can lean into it or not, but it, it just will necessarily occur where capitalism eventually eats everything and then rips everything apart. You could think of it like something that spins and as it spins, the pieces of it begin to fly off and it just spins faster and faster. And Nick Land's going to say, yeah, it just keeps spinning until it breaks apart. That's it. That's where all is, there is to it. What I gather from Yarvin and the Machiavellians is that power is a cyclical thing. There's a rise and a fall, a cyclical nature to this stuff. So it doesn't seem like that's necessarily accelerationist. It seems like it's just like an ebb and flow rather than just a constant forward. The acceleration is Land's application of neo-reaction. So it's not that that's not a Yarvin piece, though. If you read into people like... Um, the juvenile, you could probably see it there. Um, the 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 irresistibility of centralization of power 
is a, is a really key uh, thing and the inescapability of the process. You could also probably, this is part of what fascinates me about this whole school of logic is you can also see pieces of it in the managerial revolution from Burnham and then uh, later Sam Francis, it, you know, it, that this also leads us to kind of this inevitable centralization and acceleration. And so even though these things seem unconnected, uh, once you kind of see the, get the connective tissue, the linkage, it's not hard to understand how land is drawn into this, uh, this analysis of power because it further explains his own understanding of this, this deterritorialization, re-territorialization process. Could you briefly uh, define that re-territorial? Sure. I'm, I'm going to, yeah, again, I'm not a Deleuze and Guattari. Like uh, I, I don't have like the, uh, a, a super deep knowledge of this. So I'm just filtering this all through land kind of land here. Yeah. Uh, but basically it's the idea of moving things from the dominion of the sacred, uh, deterritorializing them, removing them from the territory of the sacred and re-territorialism into the marketplace. And so we take things that were beyond the reach of money and market effects and we make them subject to the market. And as we do that, we destroy the natural bonds and barriers that traditional uh, cultures placed between the market and things like church and family and, and worship. And, uh, and that means that we are, we are capitalizing all of our personal and spiritual interactions in a way that then creates the feedback loop we were talking about earlier. And pride month is the perfect graphic yeah, representation. Absolutely. 100%. Yes, okay. it is. It is a, a fantastic understanding of that process. Local, um, Bringing up Deleuze, this is kind of your territory. Deleuze is not really my territory okay. uh, because he's less influential in, in the things that I think are actually doing what's... So Deleuze is, a lot, Deleuze is another one of those French postmodernists who's almost entirely impenetrable, who talks about becomings and, and ontology and does a lot of psychoanalysis. Uh, his work didn't really get the sort of traction that Derrida and Foucault got. Derrida and Foucault, I think that's at the root of the kind of postmodernism that we're seeing coming out in the culture. Um, uh, the, the cynicism with respect to power comes a lot from Foucault and the radical anti-essentialism, which says there's no, for example, that there's no such thing as man or woman, that those things are indefinable, that there is no centerpiece to being a man or being a woman, that there's merely a, a spectrum of human beings. And we happen to have charted down two poles in two particular areas, but we could have put them somewhere else. For example, instead of having man and woman, we could have defined everybody by their eye color, and that would have made just as much sense. Because there's every much blue-eyed person and woman have the exact same amount of essence, if that makes any sense. There, there isn't any, there isn't any, how would you put it? There isn't any soul or spirit or energy or unifying feature that holds together blue-eyed people. It's just that they happen to have blue eyes and there could be literally anything else about them. The same they would say is true of man or woman. There's absolutely no, there are no necessary conditions for being a woman and there are no sufficient conditions for being a woman. And there are no set of jointly exhaustive conditions for being a woman or com not maybe jointly exhaustive. There's no, um, 
the categories of man and woman are not jointly exhaustive to cover all of humanity, is what they would say. And then they would use that to crack open the usefulness of the categories and say they're just created, right? That's not really what Deleuze is doing or Deleuze and Gutierrez. They're taking a much more, they're dealing a lot, a lot more with the psyche maybe than Derrida was doing. Derrida has, according to Jeffrey Bennington, who is like Derrida's chief, I guess you could say is like his chief interpreter, um, Derrida has oftentimes been accused of doing a sort of psychoanalysis of, of people, and Derrida ardently refused that, right, and said, well, I wasn't doing psychoanalysis, and then psychoanalysis would be like, well, we know denial when we see it, so, so you are doing psychoanalysis, right, and, and so there is, um, there's this entire aura of, of, of French postmodernism that's all occurring at around the same time in the same place in the Sorbonne in France during the 60s and 70s. And it's, it's Deleuze is there, Gachari is there, Foucault is there, Derrida is there, Avatar Ranel is kind of floating around in those circles. Baudrillard is in that area as well. So there's a lot of these guys that are all kind of in that area doing kind of the same thing, making a lot of similar observations that are just being cashed out in different systems. It is... It it seems like the um, re, uh, the stripping of the private um, and the bonds of family and culture, and then splaying that into the marketplace, like we see with pride, is using postmodern tools to do that. It's using social construction to affect that, whereas social construction is just an analysis. This kind of capitalization or marketization of the personal and the sacred is it just works nicely with these sets of ideas of obfuscating uh you know uh, categories and uh age sex all that stuff's up for grabs now is yeah. there i'm just trying That's to right. figure out if there's a uh a connection in the critique against what's happening now that is at once anorexia and then what you would say you are vocal, which you haven't said yet. <laughs> uh, well, maybe I'll put my cards on the table out here a little bit. Um, I don't think that the enlightenment project failed. I think that the enlightenment thinkers failed. And I think that the, what the enlightenment thinkers failed to do is update their insights. That's what they failed to do. They, um, the way I understand it to, to just breeze through this, I think as the enlightenment starts to kick off maybe the 14 or 1500s, you could trace it to Francis Bacon. You could trace it earlier. You could trace it later, whatever you want to take it to. Um, people try to put it in like, a box from you know from like 1789 to 1989 or whatever it is i just think i think it's kind of a, a gradual process that starts with kind of the francis bacon types and then moves through and you start sealing the renaissance art from the great masters and things like this and then you start seeing the you know berkeley and hume and leibniz and some of these philosophers are coming through the period lock um and, and then and then we're moving through and we come across nietzsche who's a, a seminal thinker, then we have the analytic tradition kicking up and we have kind of the split off between the analytics and continentals. So the analytics would be people like the logical positivists, Quine, uh, later going into Searle. And then you have the continentals, which would be people like 
oh, who would be there? Like uh, a Beauvoir would be in that school. Hegel would be considered a continental. Um, and so what you end up with is a lot of, a lot of that enlightenment era thinking the rise of science, human rights and democracy starts getting attacked for political, for explicitly political reasons, starting with Marx, I think, maybe you could go further to Rousseau, but we'll start with Marx because he's the kind of the anchor for, for a lot of this. And then it moves through the critical theoretical schools. Uh, uh, so I would say the Frankfurt school would be probably the biggest one. And they're attacking liberalism. That's what they want to attack. That's the object of their attack because they want through that they want to attack capitalism, right? Because Marx's initial philosophy um, is a social constructivist philosophy. All of a lot of what you see with the social constructivists now and the postmodernists is in its kind of like its seedling form in Marx. Marx is already asserting that man as man is produced by society in a certain way. And that there's a difference between capitalist man and socialist man. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the, the construction of man, so to speak, right? That's what he's, that's what he's on about. And so through Marx and in Marx, you, you find this critique, but he weds it to, to capitalism and to the economic system, Right. Then you move forward to the critical theorists, and they say, well, there is a thing that produces man, but the thing that produces man isn't at root the economic system. It's actually we have to go into the culture, right? That's, that's the, their cultural criticism, okay? Then you move forward a little bit, and they say, well, it's not really the, just elements of culture. It's the hegemon hegemonic portions of culture which control how the culture runs and which ideas get spread. There's a lot of Gramscian influence in there. And then when you really move it forward, you get to the postmoderns, you get to Foucault, and he's saying, no, 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 it's not, it's, man is not produced just by the culture, but it's knowledge itself. Knowledge and power are, are connected, and it's that thing which has productive and generative effects, which produces man through discourse, right? It's, it's the power knowledge in, which creates, the discourse and the power knowledge have a sort of symbiotic and cyclical relationship with each other. Because there is no knowledge that's disconnected from a discourse, and discourse is in part created by those who have power knowledge. So in some sense, there's a, a kind of a symbiotic relationship between those two. Without trying to – some philosopher somewhere is going to nitpick me for the way I described that, but I don't care. Uh, they're going to – he's pushing that out. So you start with Marx talking about, well, it's the materials and who controls the material and the wealth, that's what produces man. And then you wind up with Foucauldian power knowledge, and that's what produces man. That's what's attacking liberalism. And liberal oh, thinkers well, never on. responded uh, to that. Well, cool. Just a moment, you broke up. So to, the long and the short, Marx and his protégés are attacking liberalism. That's right. They're, and, and the Enlightenment. That's what, what are they asking. attacking about it? Like the universalism and individualism? What is it that they're attacking that we call liberalism? They, they don't like the fruit of, of enlightenment, liberalism, and capitalism because they think it leads to inequality. They think it leads to systemic injustice is basically what Marx thinks. He wants absolute equity, absolute equality. He, he thinks that isn't all that, of this competition. Isn't that just taking liberalism all the way as far as you no. can? No, no, it's not. That's, that's where we're going to have disagreement. Yeah. It's not. Because 
because and and here's why it's not um because if you're an enlightenment liberal thinker you recognize as as thomas Sowell recognized that the same man is not equal to himself on the same day of course there's going to be inequality because there's different levels of intelligence there's different levels of talent enlightenment liberalism does not imply the kind of social constructivism that marx requires and the enlightenment liberals didn't didn't did not do a proper job of responding to that and having anything and having an answer to that other than saying, well, that's not true. And because the power, the postmodernists were attacking at the level of power knowledge, and because what they were undermining is the very knowledge claims of the Enlightenment liberal to say, hey, look, these people aren't equal. This guy's over here. This guy's got a different talent over here. This guy was born. He's got, he's going to be taller than this guy over here. It doesn't matter what we do to the food supply. They're not the same. And they're going to wind up with unequal outcomes for that reason. The, 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 the power, the postmodernist social constructivist comes along and says, no, 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 stop that. The postmodernist is going to say, look, all of your social inequal, unequal outcomes are by virtue of the structure of society. And if you restructure the society, all of that inequality can get washed away because if you restructure the society, you can socially construct a different kind of person and you can engineer a different kind of society. And all of that inequity, all of and what they're concerned with is power, all of the power inequalities that allow for different levels of agency are going to be gone is what they're going to say. And the Enlightenment liberals did not do a good job of responding to this. They have nothing to say. They, they really they I mean. That they did attack some of the postmodernism for what turns out to be an anti-realist epistemology, but but they did not properly set down a line to be able to differentiate themselves. And so this is how postmodernism is able to take reformulated liberalist concepts and then their social constructivist epistemology and their philosophy of anti-essentialism, their power knowledge concepts, and be able to use that to just wash through and deconstruct the Enlightenment. They're able to just crumble it apart, and, and liberal thinkers have not done a good job of responding to this, in my view. So that's, that's how I would see it. Now, Oren was chuckling there at me for a bit, so I'd, I'd be interested to hear why he thinks that's wrong. No, it's, I mean, you're not wrong about the most of that, um, the, the, the part where it falls apart. You're right that they didn't have much to say. And there's a reason, right? Like they don't, they didn't have much to say about that because there's a fundamental problem at the heart of liberalism. And it's the, it has its own, it has its own story to tell just as, as Marxism does, right? Marxism tells us the story that you know, everyone will work together for the good of the, you know, the, everything will be engineered, you know, from the, uh, the top down and it'll, you know, we'll optimize all of the different inputs and outputs so that we get the most food and lay, you know, out of our labor, whatever. And this will create large amounts of free time where everyone will then, you know, write poetry and, you know, the, and then make the next beautiful sculpture. And like, as Americans and, and people raised in the West, we look at that and we're like, okay, well, yeah, we can obviously see like the flaw with that, with that fairy tale. Cause that's not how like human nature works. Like that's not how human incentives line up. It, it, it discards large, large amount of truths about humanity in order to construct a, like a fantasy. So like, we can all recognize that the problem is like liberalism does a very similar thing you know the idea that groups with 
very different interests that that with that have very different uh like fundamental uh, fundamentally different ideas of like what the nature of the good is it can mediate those things through like simple uh, like, like, like the idea that you would build a giant state edifice and invest it with massive amounts of power and funding and everything else. And then you would simply just hand that over to your opponent who like wishes you to be destroyed because like a majority of people walked into a booth and pulled a lever or whatever is insane, right? Like that, that's not a real thing that happens throughout history, at least for not very long, right? And so, but we tell ourselves this story, right? Because it's necessary to legitimate the power that we see around us. And so uh, it's not that that understanding of of kind of the attacks on liberal, liberalism are incorrect. It's just that the, there's a reason that liberalism was so vulnerable to those critiques. And it's because uh, the, it doesn't have a good answer to those problems, if every if everything is equal, if there are no natural hierarchies, if those things are are simply manufactured by the system, then reorganizing systems should fix the problem, right? But obviously, we know that that creates its own its own issue. We also, I think, there's also, also think there's a fundamental problem. I think liberalism, much closer to its founding, is far more reasonable. But as we get further down the road, it breaks down because we lose many essential parts of liberalism. We we lose the uh, the kind of kind of the cultural Christianity that allows it to kind of tie itself together across different groups. We lose like the fundamental virtue inculcated by intermediate social institutions. And we also, most importantly, have a state that centralizes and gets to the point where basically we're just arguing over which version of planned economy we're going to get, what flavor of that development we're going to receive, not whether this is even a good idea at all. So it's not so much that in and of itself, like liberalism just fails on its face, but it falls prey to large numbers of like technological and social uh, phenomenons that it kind of couldn't predict, which, you know, isn't necessarily in and of itself its own fault. But there are many people, again, like, you know, Demaster Car Carlisle that kind of saw this thing coming and warned people about it. So and what what is the foundation of liberalism? Let's just pin that down so we can argue uh, from the same position. What are the, the foundationing founding principles of it that that gets it off the ground and makes it soar and then arguably crumble or not um, protect itself from um, assault? If you want to kind of go back, it was um, the belief in the individual, right? That the locus of rights is on the individual. A person doesn't have the rights by virtue of the family that they're a member of or the group that they're attached to. Uh, the idea that uh, power ought to be vested in democracies in which people vote. Um, the strength and utility of science as an epistemology to know about the world. Um, the principle that conflicts ought to be resolved through rational means and through democratic processes rather than through war and through death is, is another thing. Um, the view that there is such a thing as objective truth and objective knowledge and that we can get a hold of it. Um, knowledge is not a product of who decides, 
Knowledge is objective. Things are true or false independent of whether anyone says they are or not. Uh, that there are objective goods, that there is an objective morality of some kind, that truths of all stripes are true whether or not anyone says they are. So that Jesus Christ rose from the dead isn't true because uh, a priest says it is. If, if the promise Jesus Christ rose from the dead is true, it's because that event actually occurred, right? So truth is truth is not a matter of, of who decides or is not a, a voted-upon thing. Truth is not merely a status that is conferred on a set of propositions through a social process. Truth is an objective fact about how uh, our, our propositions and claims actually relate to the world and correspond to the world. Um, there's a hope and, and progress that's invested in liberalism. The liberal generally, generally, or the Enlightenment liberals thought things were getting better, thought human beings were moving up, that we were creating greater things. Uh, there was the hope that problems could be solved is another hallmark of liberalism. So I'm giving you a cluster of it because there's no like, it's, it's not like, um, it's not like Marxism where we have like a sacred, like we have Marx just starting it. There's a, a cluster of thinkers, right? And so it's like a forest of ideas. I'm just pointing out some of the key trees that exist in that forest of ideas. So the, the big ones to focus on are individual rights, um, the utility and strength of science as epistemology, the importance of democratic institutions, the importance of conflict mediation through rational means, um, capitalism as the economic system, which produces the most uh, 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 resources and wealth for human flourishing, and the idea that people are to be judged on their individual merit rather than the group that they're a part of. Those would be like the big ones that are kind of hanging out in the Enlightenment. Aaron, do, do you agree with that or do you, can you refine that? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot there, but I, I think that's largely correct. I mean, there, there could be quibbles about a number of those ideas are pre-Enlightenment in their origin, but they're all certainly incorporated into uh, yeah. what I think most people would understand as the Enlightenment. So I wouldn't say every one of those is is only specific to the Enlightenment, but largely those are the kind of the pillars of the Enlightenment. I'd say that's right. Okay. So the Enlightenment is the articulation of a number of different values, and it produces this thing called democracy and capitalism, uh, a notion of progress. And then when Vocal, you were it's it felt like you did a sleight of hand, but maybe you didn't. So I just want clarification that science uh, believes that there's uh, objective reality, but then also that there's an objective morality too. Like, or is that? No, no, I'm not saying that science makes that claim. Okay, I'm not saying liberalism that liberalism does. Can in, enlight yes, Enlightenment liberals would say that there is objective right and wrong. Okay, That's or, or at least. At least, yes, at least the early Enlightenment liberals certainly thought that there was objective, objective right and objective wrong. And they thought that their ideas were objectively right. There was there was a that there were there were moral truths which could be known to be true. That seems like that's a point where it liberal we, we get into post liberalism because now these um, there's no objective morality at all and the liberals can't stop it from decaying. I have a theory as to why that is, which differs maybe from Oren. So I'd like to get his take on why he thinks jumping off from our, our kind of, cause we don't have time to like 
really nail down all the points of liberalism. And liberalism does pull from other eras, right? Like, I mean, a lot of a lot of its ideas about empiricism, this we could take some of those back to ancient Greece, right? So, but but I would like to hear Oren on why he thinks that it that it that it breaks apart or what it is that he thinks that is the vulnerability of liberalism that causes it to crash or, or causes it to be where it is now. Sure. Absolutely. So uh, in, in suicide of the West, uh, James Burnham said that liberalism is the, is the ideology of social or civilizational suicide, right? It's, it, it doesn't know how to defend itself. It doesn't uh, by, by necessity, it's need to, uh, to kind of mediate all cultural conflicts through this marketplace of ideas always leaves it susceptible to kind of the erosion of its own axioms. And that's liberalism's core problem is because, uh, because it, it doesn't have, again, you know, and, and it, it's, again, it's not just liberalism. It's also what's happened to the world, but because uh, we've, we've, we have massified our, our cultures and our communications and our governments, we by necessity require the ability to kind of break down these traditional groundings for, uh, for our own moralities and our own social systems, which is why even if, you know, when you talk to, I know you talk to Carl Benjamin, right? He's very specific about English liberalism, right? As opposed to French liberalism, right? Because he's correct. These two things, while connected are actually fundamentally very different trend, uh, traditions. So even in liberalism, there used to be a regionality, a tradition, a grounding that, uh, that was built upon a presupposition of shared values and morals and structures, a cultural narrative from which then liberalism is better understood. But all of that has been dissolved and always was going to be dissolved under liberalism um, due to its universalizing nature and its inability to draw boundaries in the way that more traditional social structures uh, would. And so I think that's why liberalism ultimately is always susceptible to this. There are values you must hold no matter what. They must be beyond negotiation. And if those things are up for debate, if they are constantly needing to be defended, if they are always something that can be eroded and chipped away at, they will be. The dialectic will always shift you that direction. If there are things that are beyond the realm of the sacred and everything is subject to the force of the market, then it's only a matter of time before those things are eventually broken down into their constituent parts and reorganized in a way that serves power. And so I think that that is always going to be liberalism's kind of fundamental problem. It's, you know, uh, Thomas Carlyle attacked liberalism because he said that it, uh, you know, he especially he went really hard after economics. He called it the dismal science. Right. And he said that people wanted he didn't have spreadsheets at the time, but he, I think if he did, he would have phrased it this way, this way, that that basically scientists and uh, economists, they want to turn everything into a spreadsheet. Everything is quantifiable. Everything can be placed into a formula. Everything can be solved through the system. And because this is the driving need, you never ask the really fundamental questions of human well-being. He called this the problem of England question. He said that you know the, these economists, they just want to break everything down to its constituent parts. And as long as you can make things add up on a balance sheet, even if people's lives are terrible, if you can show enough progress 
progress in certain categories, you can justify almost anything. And we can see this all the time as someone who grew up in kind of the GOP talk radio you know, political sphere, uh, they would do this all the time. Oh, well, it doesn't matter if your job got outsourced, you can buy flat screen TVs really cheap now, right? Like, it doesn't matter if you can't afford to like, have a family, think about how you know inexpensive it is to get a new cell phone, right? As long as you can as long as you can play with the numbers enough, you never have to ask the question of what's actually good for the people or the nation. And the only way you can ask what's good for the people or nation is if you're particular about who the people in the nation are. If you can actually care about a specific group and their specific needs that are not universal by their nature. And this is what liberalism wants to do. It wants to dissolve all of these boundaries and it wants to create a universalizing understanding that can be applied through these scientific systems in any situation, which always leaves it open to exploitation and reconstruct deconstruction, reconstruction by forces like the ones Wokel had mentioned. Where I'm gonna I'm gonna put my flag down on something. Mm-hmm. You keep mentioning that there needs to be a people and a culture, mm-hmm. and then you talk about the deconstruction, reconstruction through power. That's gonna trap you in cultural relativism. You can see where that's gonna pop up. Because if all you're doing is matching something to the culture, then you're matching it. Then if you're if you're epistemic and ontological, sorry, if your epistemic systems and your social and political systems are all just pinned to a culture, you've got cultural relativism, and then you're going to wind up with all the same problems. Because now you've got now you're going all you're going to have now is different cultures battling it out relativistically, where with with truth being dying in the streets for the sake of the nation, which is a very strange view to have. It's not strange at all. It was actually super common, right? Like it's strange to us now. Um, I mean, the, the the you're right that I don't think that the ancients or anyone before the Enlightenment would have understood this as like moral relativism. But I understand what you're saying, of course. Like it does open you up to the understanding that there are some uh, civilizational conflicts that will not be negotiable. There will be things that cannot be mediated purely through reason. And that is true, right? This is the, this is, uh, this was Carl Schmitt's point about political in political theology, right? Is that these, if you do not, if you don't have a, if you don't believe in the magic of liberalism, you can't always solve these, pro- these problems uh, in the way that you want them to. And that is a admitted, you know, uh, consequence of understanding, you know, the, the problems of liberalism. But I don't think the, the problem is believing, I guess, that there's another option, right? You're looking for a third way, right? You're looking for a way that you can mediate these conflicts in a universal way, and you don't have to have a particular understanding of a people or a nation, but you also want to prevent your moral system from being assailed by people who would exploit your lack of ability to draw lines, hard lines in the sand. Right. And I don't understand how that gets done. Right. I don't understand how that's possible. And I guess, I guess just, just my return fire would be, I would, I would return fire and defend myself at the same point. I would say the problem that you're going to run into is not merely that you're, that that you're saying, well, not understanding the people and nation, that's a communicative problem, certainly. But there is no fundamental difference between the epistemic apparatus of one culture and the epistemic apparatus of another culture in terms of the actual physical thing that human beings have. 
My eyes work as well as yours, work as well as the guy in Nigeria's, work as well as the guy in Australia's. Human beings don't have, I mean, there isn't a group, there isn't a particular culture in, in, in North America or anywhere that, that learns about the world through echolocation. We all have more or less the same epistemic faculties, maybe in different measure. Some people have better eyesight than others. Some people have better hearing. But on a large enough group, we all have the same epistemic resources available to us. And at some point, we have to ask the question of what is true. And the thing that is true is going to be the point. If you say, well, we have to kind of ground it in the culture, well, now you're grounding in something that can change anyway. Cultures change over time as it is. They all move, they all grow, they all die at some point. They, they, they lock horns with each other. Civiliz civilizational conflicts do occur, but even when one group conquers another, they do pull from the group that's conquered. So, I mean, you haven't stopped anything. This process of cultural shifting and changing is still occurring. And so my question is always, how do you draw the line in the sand with nothing objective to draw it with? So I, I go back to the question. Now, your point, I think, would be to say, look, would be to take a look around at the world and say, hey, Barack Obama ran on a platform denying gay marriage in favor of civil unions in 2007. And then the year of our Lord 2022, we're debating whether or not trans five-year-olds can have their genitals removed. Yeah. And you would say... There's no brakes on the train. <laughs> and uh, I guess my response to that would be that um, the mistake that the Enlightenment liberals made um, was to fail to see the attack that was coming on the idea of objective truth through the humanities. Ricky Wilchins, who's the most famous, probably the most famous influential trans activist, uh, uh, runs Gender Pack, uh, wrote a book called Gender... Gender. Uh, what's it called? Gender, gender theory, queer theory. And he, she, they, uh, <laughs> said um, that one of the most stunning developments that helped the trans movement was the conquering of academia by postmodernism. Because it didn't have a response. And I hear Oran's point that you've got to have lines in the sand that don't get crossed. But if you don't have a mechanism for an epistem, if you don't have epistemically robust mechanisms for determining truth, how do you draw those lines? Because if you get back to tradition, it's just whoever started the tradition set a line down and now we're all stuck with it. Now you could try and fix that a little bit by saying, well, yeah, but the traditions that work are the only ones that survive. Mm, that might help you a bit, but you're still stuck with the problem of you're just receiving something and accepting it and then not crossing the line. Now that will give you some lines, but what kind of lines does it give you? And are those lines true? Are those lines correct? So my solution is that Western civilization has to get back to its original origin point, the thing without which enlightenment liberalism cannot survive. And I'm going to bring back the concept of the logos. And I think that the thing that is jettisoned from Western civilization by postmodernism, which allowed it to do what it's done, is that the it is the jettisoning and the attack on the logos. That's what they got rid of. The logos was the thing that pinned and held together Western civilization, right from ancient Greece and ancient Rome, right up to, you know, fifty years ago.
it was there was a logos. Is there a synonym for That's logos, or does it just kind of float there, unconnected? What is, what do you mean by logos? The logos. Okay. Um, Are you off, appealing you to Christianity? To... No. Kind of, well, I will, but not yet. <laughs> I haven't done that yet. But first, I want to give Orm a chance before I I I I, I I'm uniquely aware that conversations could be monopolized, not least by me. So I want to give him a chance to to respond to what I've said thus far, because I'm going to invoke Logos, but I've, I've made some other criticisms of where he's from, and I'd like to give him a chance to respond to those before I, I start, um, before we get too far down the line where he can't have a, have a pushback at what my, some of my criticisms there. Sure. So the problem that I think you're going to run into almost immediately is that the conservative movement can't even do this for itself, right? They can't even come to basic agreements on things like what is a family, right? Like that, that's something that it cannot do inside its own movement. And if you can't come to shared definitions of objective truth inside that movement, because you're always questioning the foundation of those truths, then I don't understand how you're then going to proceed to build a movement around that, how you're going to secure or stop deconstruction in any other area. I mean, let's be honest, like you pointed out, the you know, we went from Barack Obama publicly being against gay marriage to transitioning eight-year-olds in an amazing amount of time, right? Like a stunning, you know, a, a light speed swimming competition for Cthulhu there, right? And so at that point, you have to ask yourself, uh, if, the, if, if the conservative position now is what Barack Obama would have rejected in 2008, what does objective truth like look for even on the right that wants to construct it, right? I see nothing inside the conservative movement, unfortunately, capable of doing this. And, and, and this is not a critique of good meaning, well-meaning people who are trying to turn things around. I think there are legitimate people who are attempting to rescue that movement from, from where it's going. But I do not see anything capable of, of, of them to, to, you know, reach those, those what are apparently supposed to be objective truths, even inside a movement that is supposed to largely agree and be moving in the same direction. If not, if the tradition is not unassailable, then all you get is this constant leftward drift. Whig history becomes true because you make it true. Could you give us a definition? I think I know what you mean by Whig history, but can you give us just a, a brief unpacking of that concept? Because I think it ties in really closely to what you just said there, and I want to make sure that everyone grabs it. It's, it's the, it's the yeah. idea of infinite progress. It's the idea that, we are, that, that history is always moving in the direction of progress. And if that is your story, then, you know, then, yeah, anyway, that, that's the defini- basic definition of Whig history, is that we're all, we are always moving towards the end of history. We are always have an infinite progress that eventually we will reach that, you know, that mountain. I wanted to make something else explicit. I think you were referring um, or even perhaps just evoking the Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson conversation around gay marriage and surrogacy. Um, maybe I'm off on that, but it's No, I seems... mean, that's, yeah, there's a lot of questions inside of that, right? The, the, but that is now a fundamental onboarding of that moral standard inside the conservative movement. And it, again, it would have been too left-wing. Your, your standard bearers of right-wing conservatism as it stands now, the people who are too radical for the left to, to talk to, the people who have to be canceled and silenced and shut down, 
are to the left of Barack Obama just a little more than a decade ago. If that's the speed at which we're progressing, then you have to ask yourself, what does a objective morality inside conservatism even look like? I, I would love for conservatism to arrive at that consensus. That would be fantastic. But I don't think it can, absent a tradition. And from whence does this tradition flow? Or from where does this tradition flow? And what, what is it that makes the tradition, what is it that makes the tradition legitimate outside of its being a tradition? What is it that, that grounds the legitimacy and adequacy of the tradition for what you'd like to use it for? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, we're, what we're asking ourselves here is, is the, does, every, does every moral, I mean, I know the answer is going to get, uh, sorry, I'm in the deep waters here. It, can you prove axioms, right? Can you prove the things on which you are grounding your own ability to reason, right? Jordan Peterson, and to be clear, I think Jordan Peterson's great. I think he has lots of very valuable things today to say Jordan Peterson's work has helped me in difficult times. This is not me ragging on Jordan Peterson. Right. One right. of the things that Jordan Peterson said himself is that the Bible is true because it is the thing that by which he understands truth, right? It is the lens by which Western civilization understands itself. It is true. If you're a Christian, which I am, I believe it's true also objectively, but Christianity is true in the sense that it also reveals to us all the things that we understand as true. As C.S. Lewis said, I understand, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun because it helps me see other things. Right? I, and, and so uh, that's um, sorry. I got lost in what I was saying there. Uh, but but uh, you know these are the grounding things of uh, of a tradition, and the vast majority of people are not going to go back and break down each individual part of their tradition and individually evaluate its own rationality. And so I think that we need to understand. And we need to be able to inculcate those values without this belief that each person needs to arrive at a rational understanding of what holds their society together. I think the people who actually do that are few and far between, and they usually end up deconstructing their own societies in the process. And so I, I think that it's important to realize that while you, you know, not everyone is going to spend 15 or 20 years of their life nasal gazing at the function, what the moral building blocks of society and arriving to the same thing that everyone else would have gotten through, through tradition. Again, GK Chesterton does the same thing when he talks about the man who rediscovered England, right? He starts as basically like a pagan and he travels and he goes through all this moral reasoning in denial of Christianity and all these other things and then when he comes back to basically reverse engineered Christian morality, he realizes he's been there all along in the same way that someone would travel the whole world hoping to find the type of land they could live in. Eventually, they come upon this place that, you know, has all the qualities of England, that that's what they wanted in the first place. They've rediscovered England, right? And so it's, it's not that individual reason doesn't have value, but it's understanding that you as an individual 
do not have all the the capacity to understand all of truth and all wis- and have all wisdom most of what you really understand is received through many many generations of people who have filtered this knowledge for you they are handing you things you stand on the shoulder of giants you are not one deracinated, you know, node that like figures out all of philosophy by yourself. And I think that's really essential to, before we just go back and pretend that every single individual is just going to arrive at the same logical conclusion when it comes to morality on their own. Yeah. Uh, you're, you reminded me of Roger Scruton who once said that traditions are the answers to longstanding questions that don't go away. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, make two things. I think how do I put this? I, I, I hear all of what you're saying and, and I, there's a level of agreement that I have with a lot of what you're saying. Um, I have a son. I, I don't let my son just do whatever he wants. Yes. Children are a great lesson in this. Absolutely. Right. He, he can't just do whatever he wants. Um, and you can't explain to him why, right? Like he fundamentally can't grasp certain principles. So there's, there are certain things that he's not capable of grasping. Right. One sec, speaking of which, yes, Booters, can I help you? I will let you know when I'm done, okay? Okay, I don't know where you put it. Maybe it's in your room. I think it's in your closet, probably, okay? Okay. Okay, but I need to. Uh, your, your father needs to have a conversation. He will explain why later. <laughs> Right? What, five to object, ten years later? The object lesson <laughs> yeah. wanders into the room. Yeah, yeah there you go. Right? And, and, and not only can he not understand exactly what's going on in this conversation, but all the technology that's being used to facilitate the conversation, the discursive wave that you and I are both stuck in that brought us together, the all the stuff that's going on, he's not going to get that, man. And so what we do is we just start teaching him basics. This is how you read. This is how you write. Why do I need to know how to do math? He needs to learn to love math. No, he needs to learn to know how to do math. If he loves it later, that's fine. But he needs to know how to do it right now. I mean, the way that, we, that I, I train him with that is a lot of similar to the way when I was coaching football, I would train wide receivers. We're going to do this. Why? Because you need to have it. Why? I, you will see next, you know, in the next years, as you're growing through this, you'll find out why we're learning this now. But we need to get this now. We need to learn how to have our, our 90 degree cuts and our 45 degree cuts and our uh, our 65 degree cuts. We need to be able to go cut all across our little spectrum for the different routes that we're going to do. And we need to start to stop. And we need to know how to do this. Caden, please don't shake the coins. And we need to know how to do all of that stuff, right? Uh, and then, you know, after two years underneath me, when they run around on a guy that works, and I say, remember that cut we learned on day one? Yeah, because you need to have it right now. If you don't have your proper foundation, you can't do the other stuff. It doesn't work. And it's not until you understand the whole thing that you can understand some of those itty-bitty pieces. And deconstruction of postmodernism works by 
by disunifying everything, removing away the assumption of unity, and then reading it through a lens where there is nothing to tie it all together. That's what postmodernism does. And that's why the liberal gets kicked on the seals, because the liberal, a lot of the heuristic of liberalism is to say, well, we're starting from a set of shared assumptions, right? And because we share the assumptions, we don't derive the assumptions all the time. We just share them. When someone comes in who doesn't share the assumptions, now what? Yes. And a lot of postmodernism advances by grabbing onto the lowest common denominator of morality. They apply the deconstructive things so that it wipes away your morality and say, well, you agree that, say, racism is wrong. And people are like, well, yeah, well, we'll start there. But wait, there's a whole pile of other stuff that goes like murder is wrong. Theft is wrong. There's a whole pile of, yeah, but we don't necessarily agree with any of that. I don't agree to property, private property ownership. And you sit there and say, well, it's not a shared value. So the only thing that's shared is this kind of bare bones number of stuff, Right. And that becomes a, a bit of a problem. Hey, welcome. And so, yeah, yeah. And do, so, do, do you have a softer uh, fidget toy for your hands? The clappy oh. thing in your hand. Do you have a softer one, just oh, like a piece yeah, of we'll, jelly we'll or this. something? Okay. Caden <laughs> has. Caden also knows that his father's ADHD, and Caden behaves in a somewhat ADHD manner. So we're learning through example here. Um, and so th- there is, there's this, this is how the attack works, right? There is a wonderful analogy that C.S. Lewis uses in, I believe it's in The Abolition of Man. And he talks about a guy who's in a mountain called the Spirit of the Age, and he's chained there. And the waiter who represents the Spirit of the Age comes to him to feed him. And he feeds him some milk. And the guy comments on, on how delicious the milk is. And the spirit of the age system, that's not delicious or good. You just call it that because of what you happen to like. It's no different than the chicken's piss or the cow's piss. It's just a secretion. And then he brings him some eggs and the guy eats the eggs and says, the eggs are those. She says, this is nothing more. How is this any different from the chicken taking a dump, man? How is it any different? Right? It's all the same. And he, the guy ends up by saying, reason rode in on a white horse and saved me. And Lewis there is eliding the technical answer in favor of a, a broader point. And that is that if you, if you want to analyze a forest by studying each of the individual leaves in the tree, you can come to the conclusion that the forest isn't there. And you can come to the conclusion that the leaves don't require any such thing as a forest. You can come to the conclusion that the leaves can grow entirely independent of anything like a bird or a bee or a squirrel or pine cone. No, 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 no. We don't need that. Look, these leaves are growing, these trees in the and they don't realize you can lose sight of the fact that, man, that soil is going to erode without a forest. That soil is going to lose its nutrients if there's nothing to die there and replenish it. That forest require that that leaf, that individual leaf requires the entire rest of the forest. And postmodernism has done a great job of of snipping enlightenment liberalism from its roots. And so in that sense, I think that Oran has a series of excellent points. I think I think that there's a critique of liberalism of what had Chesterton said since you quoted Chesterton. Um, 
the goal of opening the mind is the same as closing the mouth to close it around something solid and you don't want to be so open-minded that your brains fall out. Mm. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to pull up my definition of a logos. So a logos is a principle originating, originating in classical Greek thought, which refers to a universal divine reason, imminent in nature, transcending oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and humanity, an eternal and unchanging truth present from the time of creation, available to everyone who seeks it. Okay, it deals with the rationality of man, the intelligibility of the universe. It might be, you could think of it as the logos as that which best, which is or describes best the, the thing which um, causes, brings about, or instantiates the intelligibility in the universe. It's the thing that holds everything else together. Um, I have a really nice, uh, there was an ancient philosopher who did a really wonderful job of this, and he described it. Um, Pythagoras uh, believed in the world on three principles. The first one is the monad, representing the unification of reality, and then the dyad, which is the principle of diversification and, and differentiation, right? Harmony is when those things work together, and the harmony is based around the logos, which ties together the parts of the universe which are intimately unified and the parts which split apart and are, are diverse. That's what the logos is, Okay. When Jacques Derrida brought out his attacks from post-modernity, the thing he attacked was the Logos. And he said he wanted to obliterate Logocentrism. That was his goal. Judith Butler, I believe it's in Bodies That Matter, makes this comment where um, she attacks feminists. And the reason that Butler, well, she doesn't attack, critiques feminists. And she critiques them because they want to have a, an objective definition of woman. And what Butler says is don't pillage the remains of the Logos to try and make progress. The Logos and the return, I said this to Michael Knowles when, when him and I talked a year ago. He said, what is your goal? And I said, nothing less than the return of the Logos to the place of centrality in Western civilization. That's my goal. That's what I'm aiming at. Because it's the Logos which ties everything together. A principle of reason, of of that that describes the unity of the universe in a way that's and its intelligibility and that within it it's going to provide its telos that's going to provide its uh the meaning and the purpose that's going to describe how it functions all of that's going to be tied into a logos which is what's going to be necessary now you may have 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 been you may have anticipated what i was going to do because in the beginning was the word and the word was god right we're going to go back to John, mm -hmm. John chapter one, where he argues that the Logos is Christ. And eventually that's where I'm going to go. But before we argue that the Logos is Christ, Western civilization and the Enlightenment works on the assumption that there is a Logos. I don't think liberalism failed. I think postmodernism succeeded in getting liberals to jettison anything like a Logos. And they thought, well, we don't really need a Logos. We just have all of our systems. And they didn't realize that the systems need the Logos to hold together. And now they're crumbling because they don't have a Logos. That was the mistake. And so my challenge over and above the anorexia types uh, and some of the postmodernist right-wingers is to say, 
if you want to stop this, if you want to put the brakes on this train, the postmodernism's clip, the way to do that is through the bringing back and the reassertion of the logos. Logocentric philosophy needs to make a return. And that's as traditional as it gets, because we can go all the way back to Pythagoras and Aristotle to do that, hmm. right? Well, that's connecting us to the roots of our society. And so what I want to do is I want to say, I agree with Oran that, there's a, that the history and the tradition bring something with it. I think the thing that liberalism does is not get rid of the tradition. I think postmodernism cut liberalism from its roots in logocentrism. And I want to bring the logos back. And I think that is going to start cutting things off. Because once you bring the logos and the intelligibility back, all of a sudden men and women start having meaning again. You can start defining what a family is again. Even Dave Rubin is trying. I watched that same interview. Dave Rubin is saying, look, we still need to have the goal of a heterosexual family. And while he is, what he is seeking to do is in some way graft himself into that in some way. Now, I don't know if he's doing the proper job of it. I haven't watched the rest of the interview, so I don't know what the conclusion is going to be or what that arrangement is going to look like. But Dave Rubin is at least making the effort to pin something up and say, hey, I need to have a family. Right? He's groping for that. Everyone in conservative circles is looking for something to pin it on. And I'm saying it's the logos. So I'm going to throw that out now and, and, and we shall await a response. If, the, if, if a response there is, or maybe you agree with me, I don't know. That would make, I, that make things easier. Quick, uh, not to interject <laughs> briefly. Um, yeah. It just, it seems like Aron and Wokel might dovetail Logos aesthetically seems clean of any sort of trapping of culture or particularity, um, the way that it sounds. And maybe this is just my, you know, training in, in Western uh, culture to, to think that this is an ideal that kind of floats outside of of the particulars. But I think that that is it might be a mirage that it is. So I'm, I'm interested to see if this is where your two's views can Converge and then maybe diverge in the particulars. Uh, so I, th I think that getting back to the idea that Wiggle's talking about could be valuable, but even if that's like you said, it's also it's missing a lot of particulars, right? It's it's um, and I don't mean that he's wrong. I, I mean that it's vague for a reason because it allows a lot of people to project kind of their particular understanding of moral and culture onto it again, which is the value of liberalism, right? It allows you to smooth over this by creating some kind of like, you know, minimum uh, uh, required morality for your kind of society to function. Right. And it can kind of, it can kind of push all the civilizational and cultural and particular problems into a closet and facilitate cooperation and and like like we've talked about before you know ben that we we can't pretend that's not a function of liberal of a valuable thing that liberalism has done right like whether you like liberalism or not you or not you can't pretend that that's not a thing that it does right um but the there are a couple of problems one even if we were going to approach the project the way wilco was talking about the one of the issues that we still have is the idea that each person is going to like grasp all of these concepts and they are going to individually kind of explore them and like apply them and understand how they like, as Wilco pointed out, one of the reasons that kind of the postmodern movement was able to unroot 
liberalism is a lot of people made assumptions that these shared or you know that these shared assumptions they they had this cultural substrate was just universal it was just normal it's just what humans do right they assume that like high trust societies and like uh the the ability to communicate and cooperate on these levels to have this shared understanding of morality is just an automatic thing but of course it's not it's it's a residue of christendom right and they were they were basically being vampires on 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 the kind of the remaining uh blood of christendom and, and using it to then leverage these people. The reason they say racism is wrong is because, well, we're all equal and hatred is bad. Well, why is that? Why do you have those fundamental precepts? Oh, you're appealing to Christian sentiments, right? Like you're appealing to fundamentally uh, to, to, to sentiments that you thought were universal, but actually they were not. They were particular to a culture and a tradition that you were raised in. And what I can do now that you don't understand the tradition or culture you're raised in, and because you don't understand or have like hard barriers to your ability to deconstruct these things, I can leverage you away from these positions by appealing to one portion of it because you don't have anything to stop you from being kind of divided from the other, right? And so what what the, the problem is that is believing that all we need is just individual reason. It's again, not that individual reason is, a, is in and of itself, it's a problem. It's not that it's not in and of itself valuable or good in, in uh in a lot of instances. The problem is thinking that it can be itself a basis for morality and culture. It's not. Cultures and traditions pass down knowledge and lessons that are that have been gathered by people far wiser than us and worked into these things. And not every individual person is going to be able to evaluate those. Just as Wilco pointed out with children, you know, this is part of the, the midwit video I did, right? Like we assume... Uh, you know, a lot of midwits take uh, very childlike, uh, low low resolution versions of very important things like God or America or patriotism, and they learn to dismantle those very low resolution versions that we teach to children, and they never move on to learn more complicated and sophisticated versions of those truths, right? And and they think that they're geniuses for doing this, right? This is a, there, there's a lot of this in our society. The problem is that, well, a lot of people don't get beyond the childish versions of you, those. Sometimes that is all they grasp because that's all they needed to function in society. And they have to do other things like raise kids and earn a living and do all kinds of really complicated things, fight for their life through medical issues, right? They don't have time to like individually assess every one of these things and like rediscover them for themselves. And that has to be okay. And the way we do that is through our traditions, is is through this connective tissue of society that transmits that knowledge so that each person doesn't have to reinvent the wheel and rediscover the logos or whatever, you know, we're, we're looking at here. And so even if we do return to the, to centering things on, on kind of what Wilco talking about here, we also have to understand that we have to guard our institutions and our culture against this deconstruction by making certain parts of those assumptions unassailable. That's, you have to say things like the sexualization of children is not okay, because if you don't, then people ask, well, who's being harmed by bringing your kid to a, to, you know, a drag queen you know, striptease, right? Who's being harmed at the end of the day, really, right? If you don't have these hard, non-negotiable principles, then what happens is eventually 
everything gets removed from its tradition. It gets removed from its original founding and then can be leveraged to you know, de- deconstruct and dismantle the things the way that we're seeing it happen now. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's two things. I think one, yes, I think the average person probably is too busy to engage with me in a real deep conversation about what constitutes the Logos. Um, I might be too busy to that, judging by my, the way my son's behaving at the moment. <laughs> and, and, um, and sorry, not to cut in real quick, but just to be clear, also not just too busy, like no matter how intelligent you are, you are not as intelligent as the collective knowledge of the people who came before you, right? That, like Chesterton said that, uh, you know, tradition is the democracy of the dead, Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, it, so even if you are the most intelligent, the brightest mind of your generation, you are still not smarter than the collective wisdom of everyone came before you. That doesn't mean that changes aren't made. That doesn't mean you should be trapped inside a particular thing for all eternity just because it happened before you. But that means you need to be extremely careful about what and where you pick apart. The, the tradition that you are looking at, it's not just logic holding you together. There is far more that came before you that makes that logic possible. Yes. I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I think that the average person is probably not going to be able to involve themselves in that. I mean, th- the principle here is that no single university professor has the knowledge of the entire university, nor could they. It's not possible to know everything there is to know about physics and everything there is to know about English and everything there is to know about kinesiology and everything there is to know about, and we could go on and on and on and on, right? Nobody is capable of knowing all of that. And so there needs to be certain things that are baked into the culture that kind of guide us away. Um, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I don't... But I do think that liberalism can have traditions to it. And I think that liberalism, functionally, what it ought to be is a system for resolving conflict. I don't think that liberalism was ever meant to be the thing which gave life meaning. I don't think it can do that. I think that was a mistake. I think to try to ground, to make liberalism itself the grounding of all the culture is a mistake because it doesn't work. Liberalism is the thing that the culture adopts. That's why you have British liberalism or French liberalism. It's a, we're adopting these certain tenets about rationality and about, about individual rights and all of these things. But how people understand themselves and the meaning of their own existence, that's not coming from liberalism. Liberalism doesn't do that. Liberalism cannot tell you what life means. It's not supposed to. That's a mistake. It's a deep mistake to think that liberalism will tell you what your life is supposed to mean. But I don't see how you stop liberalism from giving people the choice to choose certain parts of a tradition and not other parts of tradition, right? It it, it smorgasbords everything. Ah, How do you stop it from smorgasbording everything? Right. And so I think I will, I don't think necessarily the post that, that I think it's postmodernism that smorgasbords everything. I think it's how do you you go from from people have a rational uh, people have the choice to choose personal autonomy and say, but you don't have autonomy over these things. 
You have you have choice right. in in these areas, but not this other. I, and I think it's well. First off, I don't think that it's possible to create a tradition which is entirely immune. Every tradition can be corrupted. It requires good people and good leadership to step up and protect it. So that's the first thing. If you're looking for to build a system that's uncorruptible, you can't do it. That's not possible. So we need to recognize that first, and we need to make sure that every generation picks wise leadership. Okay, that's the first thing. Wise leaders, and I don't just mean political leaders, I mean philosophers, pastors, uh, thought leaders, artists. Um, I, I don't think we've had any real artists in, this, in, in Western civilization for quite some time. Not, not, any, not any real artists that have gotten a lot of traction. So, uh, I, I, I sorry, I derailed you, but, but liberalism, you said liberalism is, uh, it has right. a place. I'm tying something. I'm tying something okay. together here. And what I would say is that the thing that ties it together is um, Jordan Peterson often uses the analogy of elevating something or like aiming something. And the very first thing that you do when you have a logos is you elevate some things that are good, which is exactly what postmodernism attacks. But you have to elevate some things that are good. And the things that you elevate that are good are going to be pulled back from your cultural literature. And so the tradition is going to be in part built into the art and the literature. And you're going to use that combined with reason to say, hey, look, each generation made contributions to this canon that we have. And we're selecting out and looking back over them and seeing what's good, what works, what doesn't. And those are the things that you're going to abstract out moral values and goods from. Okay. I think that we, we can get a, a, a good working definition of truth by, call, by calling it that, that which best corresponds to reality. And we can allow philosophers to nitpick that if we want, but we don't have to let them take it from us. Um, and I think then we, we all have an understanding of an innate sense of beauty. And so again, I'm going back to the truth, the good, and the beautiful, which is an ancient thing in Western civilization, right? And so that's what holds the culture together, I think. And, and so this is something that I think on the right we've, where we have failed, is that the right has taken itself and its traditionalism to the point where we never create anything new to add to the canon of tradition. Part of the tradition is adding to the tradition, and we never do that part. We just accept things. And as soon as the postmoderns cut the roots, they were free to just take over the institutions because there was no conservatives there to defend those institutions. And that's the problem. That's, that's where traditionalism falters because it loses its dynamism. And so my, my point about return to the Logos is because it gives us the dynamism to add to the tradition as is needed. That's the first thing. And I think, but I do think there's a second thing that, that you're hitting on and that's been circled around. And I don't think people understand the depth of the point that Oron is making. And that is for most people, they want to go about living a good life. That's what most people want to do. It is the the amount of work that is required to dig up and unearth the first axioms of an entire civilization 
and then reason out why those axioms are there and whether or not they're good is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, this is the great geniuses of history that did this. This was Socrates and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas and Nietzsche. Um, who is it that wrote them? Look at them. Um, Ibn Khaldun, Avicenna, Islamic philosophers. Like there's three of them. They're brilliant, but these are are singular men in history. Asking your typical person to have each person for themselves deduce all of the traditions of Western society from initial principles and how that fits together when it meets the real world is not a task that the average person is up to. And I think, I think that a spell has now taken hold where people are, are so afraid of being seen as a conservative that they'll identify as literally anything else just to avoid that stench because it's been taken down. And I think the way out of that is we need to use art and books and music. That's why, I mean, I hear people criticizing the Daily Wire. I love what they're doing. Finally, somebody's putting some major money into building a large-scale company that can produce a decent amount of art, which is not, which does not have as its goal the tearing apart of the culture. So I, I will defend liberalism. But I think that liberalism needs a logos because once it loses that, boy, it spins out of control. Aaron, do you think that um, if Western society, the Western tradition, birthed liberalism, that it's there can be a tradition um, that protects liberalism or allows liberalism to function without it running amok? Would that be an acceptable form of liberalism? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question, right? It is as uh, Spangler would say, like is is the Faustian man's like neat drive to universalize and and do this is is it escapable, right? Like, can you even can can liberalism even pin itself in? Does it even have the option, right? And I'm not sure if the answer to that is yes, right? Because one of the things we want to remember when we're talking about this is while I obviously spent a lot of time in philosophy and I think it's very valuable. I'm not, I'm not discrediting the life of the mind or the philosophy or, or any of this. We need to remember that again, these things are not all top down, right? We aren't actually philosopher Kings. That's not actually what determines culture. That's not actually what often drives society's values, right? It's not like, you know, someone sat down and was like, okay, here's how we're going to structure these things. These things are, organic and in many ways philosophers are capturing uh in moments kind of the crystallization of what the kind of the metaphysical drive of a society is right and they're they're kind of encapsulating the, the spirit of that age or the the understanding of it they're not necessarily manufacturing it now again they're it's not all ideas driving or all organic, right? It's a, it's a, it's a play back and forth that, that, that moves us through history. And also we have to remember like the events of history <laughs> drive all of this as well, where it's not all just a life of mine. A lot of what lets us pretend that everything is just the like synthesis of ideas is that again, like the, the liberal detente has allowed us to like put 
kind of what, what Prado called the, the class one residues or the foxes in the driver's seat, right? These people who live the life of the mind and the combination of ideas and thrive on that have been the ones that have solved all of our problems in recent history because the need for, for the martial and, 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 and everything else in society has fallen away, right? And the, the value of these as things centralize and complicate as complexity reaches like critical mass the life of the mind and the, and the ability to manipulate uh, ideas gains an extreme value. But eventually these things break down. Eventually we stretch these things to kind of their limits. So like uh, I encourage us to remember, I guess, just that while philosophy and these ideas and, and all this is, are very important, we have to remember that all this is not happening in a vacuum, right? There are other forces in society and other things that are happening economically, uh, in geopolitically, uh, scientifically, that are that drive all of this stuff as well. And if we if we just stare through the one lens of the philosophical and say, okay, we're going to kind of dictate down to the people how they're going to like center this, then we lose a lot, right? And it's, I think it's just really you have to be careful about that. And I think that's one of the things that. One of the reasons that post uh, post uh, modernists think they can engineer a human being is well, so did liberals, right? And so I think that that's um, that that's kind of a a logical extension of of a lot of what they they believe and why they took it to the next level in a very unhealthy way, a way liberalism disagrees with. But you know, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I think I agree with something with what you said there. We we can't, we really can't top-down, um, but I don't think postmodernism took over top-down. Postmodernism took off philosophically uh, in English departments. It took off through literature and art. Mm-hmm. It, that's where it took off. If, if we're going to go back, it's going to be through art and literature. Yeah, we might have you, a different understanding of top-down in that scenario, but yes, I, I agree that that is definitely the entry point. You, right? Like, it, it's 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 it, it wasn't none of the people who are bringing this stuff in. Like if you look at the people who are at the top now, these people, and I think maybe a lot of conservatives missed this. There was a guy after the George Floyd shooting who was instrumental in bringing about a lot of the protesting that was going on at that moment. Just a, sorry, uh, pedants out there. It was a killing, not a shooting of George Floyd. The killing of George Floyd. Sorry. I, I, yeah, we need, well, we need to pedantically nitpick everything because we're postmodern. Um, <laughs> we're on YouTube. <laughs> that's right. We need to pedantically nitpick. Um, so a guy who um, was organizing. Yeah. How do I tell this story? And he had been, came to the forefront during that period and was helping to organize that guy had been working in that community for like 35 years when he got asked and was pulled out and then was allowed to start pushing his stuff through. People who are popular now today, like when Derrida started writing, that was 1967, nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew who Foucault was in the early part of his life. These people dig themselves in for years or decades to push this stuff. The transgenderism that we see now, this stuff started being written about. I mean, you could take it back to John Money, but really started being pushed when it was picked up by Ricky Wilchins 
who was picking up from Judith Butler, who was picking up from Gail Rubin. And these people weren't just following trends. They, they moved the needle, but it wasn't top down. It was bottom up in a certain way. It was, it was, it was leveraging the elements of the culture which were already there in ways that hadn't been leveraged before, according to the philosophies which had been developed. Okay. They were able to do that because the Logos was already gone. It had been ejected from the philosophy. It had been ejected from the art. A, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I don't think cultures just purely just are eating whatever comes out of the universities. I agree with that. But I think our philosophers, I don't just mean our academic philosophers, but I mean our poets, our writers, our movie makers, our artists tend to be very often our best philosophers and the people who have the most impact. And in the conservative side of things, those things have fallen utterly, utterly silent. There was a move during Reaganism when there was still a chance the sexual revolution had occurred, the 70s had kicked in, and we were just coming into the 80s, and we had a choice. And what we chose to do was take safe harbor in politics and win political victories, and then we handed the left to culture. And for a long time, that looked like a good bet for us. You could Circuit conservatives in the 80s would say, hey, we're winning. And at the time, if you looked on the scoreboard, they were. But the underlying tectonics of the political world were shifting in the culture because the left owned that. And I think that we have utterly, which is why when I started out, when I started out unknowingly, we're coming full circle. When I started out with my little salvo across at Christian music, this is one of my problems is because we don't make good artists. And a lot of them, the talented ones, we, we, we purity test into the ground so that they can't make anything new. Um, unless someone is completely agreeing with us in every aspect of the tradition, there's nothing new to add to it. And I think that's a problem. But I do agree with Oran insofar as this stuff is not something that's happening at the end by people making decisions. There are deep tectonic plates in the political, social, and cultural world that are shifting and have shifted a long time ago. And the earthquakes we see now are following those. I would agree with that. Could I ask, because I'm, I'm less familiar than you are, when would you say like the postmodernism uh, post really got into swing? Like when it, when, it, when its seminal texts were being written and were being kind of adopted, what, what time period would that be put into? Nietzsche is the one who really kicks it off. He's the first one to really start pointing at a lot of the things about language and about power that the postmodernists grab. Derrida in 1967 and Foucault and Deleuze and those guys start writing in France in the 60s and 70s. And that's where it starts to go. It starts to really get escape velocity into the universities in the 80s through feminism, mostly through women's studies departments and English departments. And then it's in the 90s when it starts to take, get escape velocity into the arts. And then from there, you, you see, because you can start to see it with pastiche, with um, absurdism, uh, with a lot of self-referential things done in TV shows, uh, shows that reference other shows, shows that are just entirely self-referential. You start to see that through the 2000s. 
And now we're just living in it. We're just we're just in post modernity now. So I think I think that's kind of the movement of it. It it Nietzsche kind of predicts it's coming because he says the world is ripe for something like this. He kind of predicts it. I won't get into that because I'm just I'm just we don't have time for that. Yeah, that that's there, what I would say. Yeah, yeah. The reason I asked, I I had a, a vague timeline that was similar, but I wanted to 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 kind of make sure I had that before I made the point I was thinking about then we've referenced C.S. Lewis a number of times here. In fact, you, you mentioned abolition of man. And of course, you know, that probably that, um, that, that hideous strength is the, is the fictional counterpoint to that, right? It's his, it's his uh, sci-fi book. That's the, uh, the, that, that's kind of the, uh, the, the uh, fictional uh, representation of the ideas in abolition of man. And both of those books are written in, I think the forties, right? Like the early forties. And, uh, and, C.S. Lewis predicts everything that we're seeing now, right? He he predicts that, he says that once we've, you know, disenchanted people with the world and we've and we've re-territorialized everything to market and turned it into something that could be manipulated, we can manufacture human beings, right? And once one generation of human beings fundamentally changes the reality and the incentive structure and the understanding of humanity for one set of humans, that will be the abolition of man because the next generation will be born without those instincts and without that understanding, right? And so he's talking about this well before postmodernism kind of takes a grasp in, in, the, in these academic institutions, right? So I don't think that this movement is, well, I'm, I trust that, you know, you're well versed in this. I don't think postmodernism is the, is where this happens, right? I think that these things are predicted before those things take, take a grasp in the culture. I think Lewis saw something fundamental about what was happening to humanity um, that was part of liberalism, but also part of something else that isn't liberalism, again, is, is, the centralization and modernization, the massification that is that our kind of world is undergoing. And so I think there's it's not that I don't think that postmodernism isn't important or isn't a like a like maybe even a watershed moment in this process, but I'm just saying that these precursors existed and that this process was already ongoing. And so there's something fundamentally there in kind of the Western project that was being seen even before kind of those, those thinkers take hold and kind of start, you know, producing this literature and, and the, you know, these influential ideas. And I think we see, see it in people like Lewis. Uh, um, yeah. I think, I think what Lewis is responding to there is something that does something very similar to what postmodernism does. And I think Lewis is responding to the project, the rationalist project, which is, which is the enlightenment project, right. And best and best expressed in logical positivism logical positivism which says there's nothing except the physical world and the only way to know the only the only thing that exists in the physical world and the only way to know things is through empiricism and logic that's all that exists Hmm. now that's outside the scope of the enlightenment but if you take that and i've got this other theory about how things are metabolized into the culture logical positivism had a verification principle which said roughly speaking i know there were several iterations of it but roughly speaking that uh, the only way a statement has any meaning is if that statement can in some way be verified, right? So they would say metaphysical statements like God exists would be meaningless, mm-hmm. the only, right? That's how they grounded their principle of meaning. 
And so there, the verificationism and logical positivism was a commitment that that meaning comes from um, something like our empirical contact with the world and our understanding thereof, something like that. You don't know what something means unless you have uh, an experience of it. You can empirically verify that that thing is there. So that's where we get meaning from. And imagination is just our ability to play with the ideas that we've picked up empirically from, through our senses, right? And that, when that is metabolized by the culture, becomes that kind of midwit Reddit facts and logic, hmm. right? That that Reddit, well, facts and logic, source, right? right? Source, paper, show me the paper, peer review, that kind of thing. And so I, I think, how do I go about this? I think that there is a... Um, I think that that's what Lewis is catching on to because the, there's nothing but facts and logic does a lot of the same work that postmodernism does in terms of getting in terms of shredding traditions and obliteration of the logos. Cause, cause how do you scientifically verify a logos? Like that doesn't, you need the logos to do any scientific verification to begin with. And eventually logical positivism falls apart, but that kind of that spirit that kind of took from logical positivism I think, which doesn't, which was not a part of the development of the Enlightenment, but but well, which kind of got escaped philosophy from it, because those guys were Christians and they didn't accept that that it was required. It's there's a certain in 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 the logical positives. There's a reduction of reason to mere logic. Well, I would say that actually a lot of the, again, the critics of the Enlightenment, again, you look at Demestre and Carlyle, and they predict exactly this outcome, right? Like they, they and, and, and many of the later critics have the kind of the same, uh, same thing is that this will eventually unmoor itself from this idea and, and, and this verification will become the only thing that does create truth, right? Or, or And so I don't think that these things are... I, th I think a lot of people saw this coming and they saw it coming for a reason. I don't think they predicted this outcome because they just got lucky. I think they saw a fundamental problem with kind of the, the, the pillars that the enlightenment was being built upon. And so again, we're never, whatever happens next will fundamentally be post-liberal. It will, it will take parts of liberalism on board and it will make it something new that, that we're not going to escape the influences of liberalism or its language and its understanding in many ways. But um, so there's, so there's no like going back and just eradicating it or something oh, no. like no, yeah, no, no, that. No, 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 no. That's, that's never going to happen. No. The only so, way out is through. Right. Yeah, ex exactly right. And so I, I don't think there's, uh, my point is not that like, you can just scour this from, you know, from, from like, you know, the, the, the popular understanding and return to some, some pre-liberal point in the past, but we need to just onboard and understand like the, the, these critiques existed for a reason and they came, they became true for a reason. There's a, we got here. There are a lot of people who told us we were going to get here. They told us how we got here and we can't just say that, well, the tradition got like sidetracked in one place or another. And that's how we ended up. Well, the people who were criticizing it back in like, 1780 saw why it was going to happen right like they, they they particularly called out the track that these things would take 
And so I think that you, even if your project is to rehabilitate and update liberalism, you really want to understand what they were saying uh, because their points were valid and their predictions were made manifest. And so I think that's just something to remember as you're, as you're moving forward, but I know we're, we're running very long. So I, yes. I, well, <laughs> if we so I guess to, uh, to kind of land the plane, um, Aaron, what's your counter then? Uh, to, to, the to what's project. happening now sure. yeah, to the liberal yeah. project and the sure like again that's the million dollar question right and i i don't pretend to you know i am not a professional philosopher i am not i don't have any you know i don't i don't i don't have all the all the all the uh, answers in any of this i will say that there are some things that are pretty fundamental to what's going to happen next. We're going to need something underlying the values and morals and of our culture. And it has to be more than just like, we kind of agree on the general idea of like where my maybe good comes from. Like we, we need a much more fundamental understanding of, of what's going to come next. We need something that binds people together in a real organic sense, something that's meaningful, something that allows them to realize the good, the beautiful, and the true, to have a understanding of what that is and how it can be achieved both in their lives and in the wider culture, wider civilization. I really think that if that's going to happen, we fundamentally have to devolve things down to more localized communities and understandings of that. I don't know how that happens. That that's the hard part is, is how we get to is, is how we get there. Cause I don't think this is a problem you can solve like across the globe. I don't think this is something that the entire global community, or even at this point, the entire United States can come to as a, as a shared thing. And so I think fundamentally you have to return, you have to return a lot of decisions and a lot of deference to intermediate institutions that are not the central government if for for these things to grow and to be, and, and to take root in a meaningful way, um, but again, how we get there, I, I I do not have the answer for that yet. That is the the very difficult part. So maybe a bit of a point of agreement. I I think you're kind of right about that, and I think that the universe the thing that used to do that was universities and technical schools. I think with the thing and churches. I think or, it was churches. I think that's yeah. yeah. And uh, there's been, I believe it was Oz Guinness who said that secularization has occurred where religious institutions and ideas have lost all of their social significance. Now, you could have a small s secularization where you have the formal separation of the institution of the church from the institution of the state. But when you have jettisoned the value of religious ideas from your culture and from all your cultural institutions to the point where they're insignificant and don't get traction in any kind of discourse or conversation, now you have capital S secularization. And I think that capital S secularization then leads to a a pluralization of sort of a vacuum that shows up where everything gets sucked in. And because of the, the ethos of pluralization, you end up then to follow up with um, everything gets moved to the domain of the private. And that's where all meaning has to occur is in the private, right? You do it at home. 
You can't be a religious person. You can't, you can't broadcast. You can't have your religious opinions be out in the world where they're offending people. You have to move them into the private. You can't have a religious set of ideas that kind of holds over or acts as an umbrella over the culture. No, that has to be returned to the private. And then that combines with the atomization of the individual. And it's no surprise that things have crumbled in the way they have. So I think that those intermediary institutions are going to show up. But those intermediary institutions are going to be the ones that survive via either one, power, or two, power gained via competence. And, and I think that, that uh, the small L liberal institutions that pick up those things and are able to do this well will then be the ones who get to set the culture that the other people that you were talking about get to graft themselves into. And then I think you're going to have a bare bones overarching liberal structure that allows these groups to just not go to war with each other. To just, to just avoid physical brute wars with one another. I, I think you're going to have something like that. So, so a but, Christian dome, but that, that's secular then. So I'm saying that the formal, the methods of various groups to, to mediate conflict will be the sort of small L liberal, but within those groups, those communities are going to be uh, maintained, held together and grasp their meaning from institutions operating roughly where the church was. If I had my bluster, it would be churches, but not, not everyone's a Christian, but but that's where it would be. It'll be church-like institutions operating at that level, right? It won't be some the, the ministry of, of meaning up in government. It'll be the church that I go to on Sundays and the community of Christians with which I, with, within which I participate and build meaning. I think that's where that goes. So I think Oran's right about that. I think that, that yeah. You can't just make meaning by yourself watching YouTube. No. No. <laughs> but uh, playing Christian metal uh, full blast in your car while driving around the city is another matter. It's absolutely key. It's necessary. Don't let anyone <laughs> tell you different. Well, well, um, can I ask how old you are? Hmm? Can I ask how old uh, you I'm are? in my late 30s. I'm 38. I'm 38. You and I are the same. You and I are the same age. Probably probably within maybe one one or two years give or take and and it's in this conversation this kind of thing that we're going back and forth on is the kind of conversation that just never occurred uh we funded policy tanks the point i was making about reagan before we funded policy tanks and like legal structures and like they got rid of roe v wade so like i would say good like that was effective but at what cost? Because the stuff that needed to be hashed out in terms of like the cultural things, uh, the moral things, the social things, all of that got left behind. And so those institutions are losing their social significance and conversations like this are having more and more clout over the conversation. It's, 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 it's of absolutely no surprise to me that all of the people that are involved in this whole area of things, you, me, James Lindsay, Chris Ruber, Peter Bogosian, um, Melissa Chen, all of these people are like late thirties people who have, who 
grew up, watched it all the height of the de- cultural decay and are now looking around saying, okay, what do we do? That's of no surprise to me at all. So I just wanted to toss that out. Yeah. Cause that's a, that's the thing I've noticed. It's always late thirties that like 35 to 40 range. It's always that. Nope. I think that's true. Well, um, this was a conversation to write home about. Thank you both for joining me and letting me host you guys. I learned a lot and I took tons of notes that I'm gonna have to go over at a later date. So, um, I guess we'll wrap up the recording right now and, uh, say goodbye to the folks at home if you want to okay goodbye folks at home <laughs> no absolutely it's, it's uh, great meeting you local and it's, it's uh, great talking to you again ben yeah sure. it was a good this was a good conversation no absolutely